All right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, again, reminder to all of our members, we have our budget meeting today after service. Uh, it's really important that you're there. Part of our bylaws is we need a certain quorum to be there. And so if we're not there, then we, we have to have another meeting if, if we don't have enough members there. And if we don't get, uh, oversee our budget as members, you might see me on Preachers and Sneakers and Prophets and Watches. And so we don't want to be at that type of church. We want to have transparency in all of our giving. And we want to be a church that, uh, that the congregation knows where uh, where it's being distributed. So please make sure you're there um, at 12.45. We're going to start on the dot because, again, we are not serving lunch. Uh, and we know you're going to be hungry, so we want to be efficient. But that begins with us coming in here at 12.45. And again, if you're not a member here, um, we, we start membership classes in two weeks. And we really hope that if this is a church that you want to call home, that you could uh, sign up and we'll see you in that first membership class. So with that being said, um, we're going through a new series, if you were with us last week. And uh, the, the passage to kind of kick off this new series uh, with the, is uh, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke. Actually, two passages. Uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, chapter 5, and also uh, from the Old Testament, a uh, short psalm in Psalm 46. And so if you have your programs or your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 5, and we can all rise together, because we believe as a church that when we read God's word, we believe God is alive and he's speaking to us through his word. And so Luke chapter 5, um, verses 12 to 16, and then we'll read Psalm 46. So this is uh, the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes, starting in verse 12, while he, referring to Jesus, was in one of the cities, There came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And then Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us real quickly. Father, would you bless our time together? After hearing you speak, may we know and meditate upon your words, and may your spirit move in this time together as your gathered church. We know you're present here. Help us to have ears to hear, and for us, O Lord, to have softened hearts. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You may please be seated. So a few months ago, I was driving to meet a friend at a coffee shop, And like I normally do when I was driving, I took out my phone. I know that's really bad, but I took out my phone while driving because I need to text him, my ETA, saying, hey, uh, this is when I'm coming and arriving. But as I was texting my friend, my ETA, my phone died because I didn't charge it. It ran out of batteries. And at that time, I did not have a portable phone charger. So I spent the entire afternoon without my phone, and it felt so weird. I mean, normally when I drive, especially at red lights, when I'm at a red light, I'll take out my phone and start scrolling and looking around. But every red light I stopped at, I had to just look at the red light. It was weird. Like, I hadn't done that in a very long time. When I got to the coffee shop, you know, I went to get coffee and I had to wait in line because this was kind of a a pop-in coffee shop. And when I stood there in line, I just stood in line. Like, that's all I did, just standing there. That was strange. And at one point, after I got my coffee, I sat down with my friend, and we're talking, and he's like, hey, I have to go to the bathroom. He went to the bathroom, and when he went, I just waited. 
I just waited for him to come back. Very strange. And, and again, I, I remember this day very particularly because, one, this was the day where I bought a portable phone charger because I knew I, I realized I needed one. Uh, but two, this is also the day where I realized how hard it is to just be still. To just, like, sit still is so hard. Like, I cannot just drive, and I can't just wait in line. I can't just sit down. I need to always be doing something. I have to have this out, doing something. I can't sit still at all. When I'm, ex- when I'm doing some type of exercise, like at the gym, the few times I go, I can't just run on the treadmill. I need to make sure I have like my AirPods and listen to something. When I'm washing the dishes, I don't just wash the dishes. I'll have my iPad up on the sink next to me and I'll be watching something as I'm washing the dishes. Even when I'm watching something, I cannot just be watching something. I'll have Netflix on the TV and then I'll have my iPad. I'll have basketball highlights on YouTube playing and then I'll be on my phone scrolling an Insta story all at the same time. That's my life. And I know this isn't just me. This is all of us. We're all like this. When you come to the movie theater a little bit early and those ads are playing in the theater, you're not looking at those ads. What are you doing? You're looking at your phone, checking and scrolling and looking at what's happening online. When you're in a work call on a Zoom call and it starts to get boring or your two coworkers start talking about something that's totally irrelevant, what do you do? I know what my staff does. They don't think I know, but I know. They're opening windows and they're looking at something because they're not paying attention at all to what we're saying. I know. Uh, When you're in line at Disneyland and it's a long line, there's a group of of five of you waiting in line, you're not talking to each other. What do you do? Take out your phones and you're all scrolling, you're texting, checking ESPN scores, looking at Instagram stories, looking at different TikToks, uh, playing iPhone games. In fact, some of you on Sunday, you cannot sit still even here for 30 minutes without your phone. The sermon's being done, and you're checking your fantasy scores. You're checking what's happening online. You're checking Twitter. You're checking Instagram, because you cannot sit still. That is a foreign experience for you. Why are we like this? Like, why do we need to, to do that? And I realize that we're doing this all the time because our environment is filled with noise, and we've developed a habit of hyperactivity. The environment that we live in today, you have to realize when you pay attention how noisy it is. When you go to a grocery store, it's not quiet. Pay attention one day. What's going on? Music. There's always music playing in the grocery store. When you walk into an elevator, what's happening? Music in the elevator. When people come to my community group and we, they enter my house and we're about to eat, I play music. It's too weird for there to be silence because we grew up in an environment filled with a bunch of noise and you have the habit of always doing something along with that noise. We're always multitasking. We're always doing multiple things at the same time. And because everybody does it, it feels so normal. This is what just everybody does. This is normal life. And even though this is our normal you must realize how unique this is. This is a unique 
cultural moment, and it's very strange. No generation has ever lived in such a crazy, noisy, multitasking environment. And just right now, we are beginning to see the consequences of that environment. You guys know that there's a major mental health crisis going on, right? And it all began in college universities. That's the first time it actually got on people's radar. We're like, whoa, what's going on? Why are people so depressed? Why are people going to counseling all the time? Why do people suffer from anxiety? Every metric shows that students nowadays in college, they are the most anxious and the most struggling with depression. And uh, the reason why that happened is they're trying to look at it. And there's a fascinating book. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, they're pretty much noting that, oh, the, the mental health crisis, it actually got on the map and began starting with the college class of 2011. The college class of 2011, there was a significant spike up of the mental health crisis that made people pay attention. And there was nothing unusual about 2011. It wasn't like there was war going on or something crazy like the stock market crashing. What was it about 2011 that made everybody suffer from mental health issues? And what they discovered is, oh, this is the first generation, the first group of college students where all four years they experienced something in college that no other generation experienced. Smartphones, social media. Because when did that get invented? 2007. 2007 was the advent where people got popularized and they, when they were in high school and seniors, they had the access to this. They went to college throughout with social media, with smartphones. And as a result, we see this spike pop up. And again, we don't ever want correlation to mean causation. But in the book, uh, Call the American Mind, they're saying there is absolutely without a doubt a simultaneous rise of the use of social media, iPhones, and the increase of mental health issues taking place. Because the digital devices, even though it is very helpful and it's doing something to make life easier, it is also causing this weariness and this burden, or to put it another way, it is amplifying the weariness and burden that we're already feeling. One professor, he puts it like this, quote, our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. Yet, in bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. Our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still. And the result is that we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. I think all of us kind of feel that. All of us could feel it. Again, this isn't a rant against iPhones or against social media, but the fact of how attached we are, that's what kind of is what's the problem. When I see people on their phones when I preach, and I see all of you, When I see that, I don't think, oh, how dare you? This is church. That's not my posture at all. My thought is, wow, that's really sad. For 30 minutes, you can't get off your phone. That's really sad. What do we do? What do we do? How do we deal with this? And especially for us, we all know this isn't making us more lighthearted. This isn't helping us with our burdens. It's increasing it. And that's where this new sermon series is coming into play. Jesus, he looks at us, us tired, weary people, 
always busy, always on the move, always hyperactive, always scrolling. And he says, come to me. Take my, my yoke upon you. You who are tired, you who are weary, and learn from me. Because as we talked about last week, Jesus, he lived the most full and truly human life ever on this earth. And what Jesus is inviting us to is if you want to live the life that I live, you must adopt my lifestyle. You must adopt my practices. And that's what we're doing is we are looking at the practices of Jesus, which I introduced last week. There are eight practices that we'll be focusing on. And what the goal is, is how do we adopt these practices as a template for our life? Not as commands per se, but as a way of life for us to work as a rhythm for us so that we could truly live the way Jesus lives. Now, amongst all these practices, though, is there a practice to help us against the noise and the hyperactivity that's going on? And yes, there is. The most special practice that's there is this first practice, which is the practice of silence and solitude. We can never go back to the pre-digital age. We, should, we don't have to get rid of our iPhones per se, but we can adopt practices where we can thrive still in this environment with crazy noise that pressures you to always be on the move. And so the question today that we're going to be talking about is, well, what is silence and solitude? Like, what happens in this? Like, what are we talking about here? What does it actually look like? And so we're going to look at this in three ways. Number one, defining what is silence and solitude. Let's talk about that. Second, why do we need silence and solitude in particular? And then third, how do we practice silence and solitude in our lives? So what is it? Why do we need it? How do we practice it? First, what is silence and solitude? Luke chapter 5, the passage we just read, it's a story in the Gospel of Luke that took place in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus, at this time, he was teaching in the synagogues, and he was healing people. And what happened was a little bit of buzz. There's like a new rabbi in town. It's like hearing a pastor come, and he's kind of doing all these crazy messages with church and so forth. And this time, they're like, oh, there's a new rabbi, and he has a lot of buzz because he's teaching with authority. He's helping people who are spiritually sick. And then in verse 12, we come to an interesting, interesting passage. Look back at the passage again. In verse 12, someone comes to Jesus. It says, while Jesus was in one of the cities... There came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, here's the thing. Jesus has done a lot of stuff so far in the beginning of his ministry, but this is new. A guy with leprosy. Leprosy was an incurable disease. It made you an outcast of society, and there was no solution to it. It was an incurable disease. In fact, you stay away from people with leprosy, otherwise it will infect you. And yet Jesus, in the passage, what we see is he doesn't only let this man approach him. Jesus goes, he touches him, which is a big no-no at the time, and he actually heals him. Verse 13, it writes, And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. If you follow basketball, you might have heard a year ago about this French high school prospect, Victor Wembayama. He is a huge player with a lot of buzz. And if you don't know who that is, you know what I'm talking about, next year you will know him. In fact, a lot of us know who he is because for the first time he played in the ESPN game about a week or so ago, and everybody was talking about him because this guy, he can shoot threes, he can dribble, he can pass, and he's seven feet four. Insane. Nobody has ever seen anyone like him. We've heard about, play, people heard about him before, but after this ESPN game, he is just exploding 
on Twitter, on Instagram. His fame is going across, and that's what's happening with Jesus here. Jesus was a rabbi. He was teaching. He had buzz. But after this, when he heals somebody of leprosy, everybody's now talking about him. Verse 15, look what it says. But now, even more the report about Jesus went abroad. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Now, if you were Jesus, or if you were just you right now, and you found all of a sudden that you gained 100,000 followers on Instagram, or 200,000 followers on TikTok, or whatever you're on, what would you do in light of that? You might start posting more, build a momentum. You might seek sponsorships. But Jesus, he does the exact opposite. In verse 16, look what Jesus does. And he, Jesus, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now, notice Jesus, he's not just praying. It's not like there's so many followers, I'm going to pray. But it says he withdraws, meaning he got away and he went to where? Desolate places, meaning these uninhabited, no people, no one there places. Why is Jesus doing this? Is Jesus like us introverts? All the introverts in the room, you know why you do this. You need to preserve your energy. Too many people, it's too much noise, and you just kind of get away. Is that what Jesus is doing? Jesus is actually doing something very significant here. He's practicing what we're talking about. This is silence and solitude. One author, his name is John Stark, he describes silence and solitude like this, quote, silence and solitude, this is, it's on the screen, I believe, silence and solitude is the normal rhythm of quietly listening to the voice of God so that when circumstances are not quiet, our hearts are not disquieted. It is the rhythm of coming to God in stillness with our insecurities and loneliness and learning to experience more of the presence, companionship, and communion of God. In other words, Jesus, he's not being an introvert where he's isolating himself. That's isolation. There's a difference between isolation and silence and solitude. Isolation, what you're doing when you isolate yourself is you're doing a couple things. Remember, it's on the screen here. You are looking to escape. You're getting away from people. You're trying, to, you're trying to physically recover. You're spending alone time. That's isolation. And a lot of us do that. But what Jesus is doing here is silence and solitude, which is kind of the opposite. You're not looking to escape, but you are going to God. You're looking to engage. You are not going, getting away, but you are going to God. You're not physically recovering. You are spiritually recovering. And you're not just spending time alone, but you're letting your soul catch up to your active body. Your body's just on the go, 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 go. Your emotions on the go, go, go. But your soul is now catching up and matching the pace of where your body is going. And this is what Jesus did in Luke 5. In fact, when you look at the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, Jesus is all the time regularly doing this. In the Gospel of Luke, for example, that this situation where he withdraws to a desolate place, it happens nine times. He does this nine times where Jesus, the busier his life gets, the more he withdraws and gets away from people. In the Gospel of Matthew, before Jesus begins his ministry, do you remember what Jesus did for 40 days? For 40 days before he began that new job, your new internship, whatever it might be, his new job as the Messiah, do you remember what he did right before that? He went to the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, quote, Then Jesus, he was led... Oh, I think it's a quote on the screen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit 
into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I grew up in the church, and when I saw he went to the wilderness, I thought, oh, yeah, he's there, and he's really weak, and the devil got him when he's really vulnerable, and so that's what happened in the wilderness. But the interesting part is, why did the Spirit lead him there then? If this is this place of, like, you're just really weak and tired, why would the Spirit bring Jesus there? And I love one thing that John Mark Comer says in his book, uh, The Ruthless Limitation of Hurry. He says, quote, the wilderness, it actually isn't a place of weakness. It's the place of strength. It was there and only there that Jesus was at the height of his powers. It is only after a month and a half of prayer and fasting in the quiet place that he had the capacity to take on the devil himself. He needed to withdraw, not because he was introverted, not because he was weak, but to make him strong, to face the devil's temptations, and to begin this new life of ministry. When you look at the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, especially in the beginning, you'll notice Jesus, he travels a lot. He's always walking. And it says Jesus, he, traveled from, he went to Jerusalem. He traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem. We go, oh yeah, sure, okay, we don't think much of it. Do you know how far Jerusalem and Galilee is? You know how long with distance that is? That's like us saying, oh yeah, he walked from Irvine to Los Angeles. It's like, that's really far. And we know that's far because we're, we live in this area. And that was happening with Jesus. Galilee to Jerusalem was 90 miles. And Jesus would walk there. There was no car. You know how long that took? Five days. Five days of walking. And Jesus would often take that journey alone. What was he doing? Silence and solitude. By himself journey. My favorite though is it's not just Luke, Matthew, or Mark, but the gospel, or John, but the gospel of Mark. Uh, there's a passage in, in Mark where Jesus, he sends his disciples two by two. He goes, and they're on a mission trip. He goes, go on this mission trip, evangelize and cast out demons and so forth. And after this long mission trip, and if you've been on a mission trip, you know how exhausting it is when you come back. They're all back and Jesus looks at his disciples who he sent, and this is what he tells them. In Mark 6, verse 30, it says, The apostles, they returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Translation, after this long trip, you don't need a beer. You don't need a Netflix show. The main thing you need right now is alone time with me. That's what Jesus is inviting them to. Now, what ends up happening, if you read Mark 6, is as they're about to go to this desolate place, all these crowds come going, hey, we want Jesus. And Jesus like ministers to them, and they're all hungry. So this is that famous feeding of the 6,000 where he makes bread and multiplies and gives it to them. And after they're done, it's now a really long day. What does Jesus do? In Mark 6, verse 45, look what happens. Immediately after all that, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. When you read that passage, you think Jesus is so holy. He just prays all the time. Mm-mm. It's because this is the only time he had to pray. Because he was busy. He's like us. We're busy. Things happen. Life interrupts us. And when that happens, Jesus takes it in stride. And then what does he do? He makes time to get away, to be silent, and to be still. And the reason why for Jesus he does this is because this is not optional. This is not an extra thing to make you a little bit more holy. This is not a practice for super Christians. This is a practice to be human. This is what it means to live a human life. It was essential for Jesus to do this. He always got away 
and always practice silence and solitude. And not only Jesus was this something that he would practice, but all of his followers. This was a normal rhythm in the life of Jesus' followers from the very beginning. The Apostle Paul, not many people know this, we all know he got converted on Damascus, you know, like, oh, there's this great conversion from being a Pharisee to a Christian. But in the book of Galatians, you know what it says? Paul mentions to the churches in Galatia, I went away for three years to the wilderness. Paul went away for three years by himself in silence and solitude before ministry began. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do. In the third century, do you remember what the most popular types of groups and communities got formed in the church? Monasteries. Monasteries started appearing and monasteries that was all about silence and solitude. Some, this was something that is even for today, for those of you who grew up in the church, what was the main thing you were told to practice? QTs. Quiet times. Where did that come from? Silence and solitude. This is not a new thing. This is not this mystical thing that some mystics are thinking of. This is something that Jesus would regularly practice as a rhythm of his life. You see it traced throughout church history. And even from our previous generation, the idea of quiet times, it has its origins from this practice of silence and solitude. Jonathan Edwards, one of those famous theologians, he says it like this, quote, a true Christian doubtless delights in religious fellowship and Christian conversation, but he also delights at times to retire from all mankind to converse with God in solitude. If this was such an essential practice of Jesus and such an essential practice of all of his followers in the past, why are we doing it today in the present? Why is this so absent for us? And I think I know why. I don't have time. I'm too busy. I'm a new mom. I'm a new dad. My kids are crazy. Forget silence and solitude. It's just noisy in my household. I started a new job. It's very demanding. You don't know what my boss is wanting me to do. I am on the go. I'm so tired. I'm so weary. And again, I get it. I completely get it. But a couple things to know if that's you. One is, you know, Jesus was busy and he needed silence and solitude. Jesus needed silence and solitude and you don't? That's an insane posture to have. Jesus needed silence and solitude because he knew the human soul needs that. But also the reason why we are so tired and busy is because of the fact that this is not there in our lives. It's missing. We're always on the go. And right now, you don't feel it. I told this to my community group. When you're in your 20s, you don't feel it. When you're in your late 20s, your mind goes, I'm okay, but your body begins to feel it because you all of a sudden start getting sick a lot. You start feeling a little bit tired a lot. And you think it's because you're just having a bad day, but it's actually a buildup of all this move, 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 go, go, go. When you hit your 30s, you start to get a little bit, not just your body, but it's now your spirit. You get sad. You don't know why you're anxious. And so you see a psychologist, but it's actually this buildup of go, go, go. And then later on, you start seeing in your relationships, your relationship starts breaking down because you can't really be there for them because you're tired and you're weary. And it's because we're always on this go, 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 go. And what Jesus is telling us is what we actually really need is to pause. Rhythms of pause, to be silent, to be still, and have solitude. Now, why is this so helpful? Why do we see Jesus see this as the essential? And that leads to the second point. Why we need silence and solitude. So far, everything I said, if you are not a Christian, or you didn't grow up in the church, you'd be like, sounds good. 
Sounds good. In fact, the word mindfulness, that's like a key buzzword, right? Everyone's talking about being mindful. Go to yoga and it's like, yeah, we're about science and solitude too. And you just breathe in and breathe out and that's yoga. Uh, you go to your, our bosses at workplaces, they, go, they do breathing exercises, which by the way, that's, it's not a yoga thing. Breathing is really good. It's good for your brain. It's good for your body. Amen to all of that. It's all about physical health and mental health and staying focused on something. But why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus practice science and solitude? And it's a very simple answer. He was a Jewish rabbi. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and this was not something new. This is something God's people did all the time. In the Old Testament, you will always see people practicing getting away to the wilderness and being with God. Moses, David, the Psalms. There's always this call to come and to be before God's presence for there to be silence and get away with him. Perhaps the most famous is the psalm that's in your program. Psalm 46, verse 10. There's many psalms like this, but this is probably the most famous one where it says, be still and know that I am God. This is a prescription given to God's people on how to know God, which is very fascinating because this is basically calling us for silence and solitude. And when you look at this psalm, there are two things that the psalm, you could almost say, is telling us what happens when you are before God in silence and solitude. Here's the first one. Through silence and solitude, you can quiet your souls. Be still. Be still. You know, when the praise team plays, do you guys know what the most significant instrument is, is on the stage? The most significant one. It's the bass. The bass is the most significant instrument. You know why? Because the low frequency, our ears are able to catch it. It's the most identifiable sound that our ears are able to catch. And so when we all clap, we're clapping to the rhythm, not of the acoustic, not even the drums. It's the bass. And we don't even know it. Because if you're like me, I don't hear the bass. I don't know who our bass players are sometimes. I'm like, do you play bass? Because they are the invisible person who's playing the sound. But the only time I hear the bass is when they all stop. And then I hear the bass playing and go, oh, that's the bass. And yet, without knowing it, it is the most significant sound that's there driving the rhythm of the praise time in our church worship. And the way that works is, that's almost a similar dichotomy or uh, comparison to how we go through noise in our life. The external noise of the phone, of the music, of the grocery store playing, that's all playing, and we could hear that, but that's all external noise. And the external noise, what that causes is for us to not hear the base of our life, the most significant noise in our life, not external, but the internal noise. There is an internal noise that is playing all the time. And if you want to hear it after church, drive home and turn off, turn off your radio. Don't listen to anything. Just drive home and you will hear the internal noise. You will remember, you will hear this noise of why did that person say that to me? Why did he talk to me like that? What's that person's problem at church? What's my mom's problem? Oh my gosh, I have this deadline tomorrow. Am I on top of it? What do I need to do? I can't wait till vacation next week. Oh, I can't wait for that to take place. What's going on? There's this internal noise that's being played. And that internal noise, that's actually what's making you feel really heavy and tired. Because oftentimes when you are listening to this internal noise, it's always about the past, which we talked about leads to depression. It's always about the future, which leads to anxiety. And that's what's weighing us down. And what the problem though is this internal noise, we don't even know it's on because we are so distracted by all the external that we don't even know that this is playing and we have no idea how to turn it off. 
Silence and solitude, what that does is you turn off the external noise, which for a lot of us, that might be hard, but it's your choice. You could get away from your phone. You could get away from the noise. But then when you're there, you begin to hear the bass. You go, oh, that's what's making me tired. And I need to begin to learn how to turn that off. And that's how you find rest for your souls. That's what we need the most. Because as, as, uh, as one author says, quote, too much time spent in the past leads to depression. Too much time spent in the future leads to anxiety. So you're meant to live in the present. Turn off those things so that the present is there and your soul could breathe. Your soul could find rest. Because there's a lot of stuff happening that's weighing down and you don't even know it. There's an NPR report where a journalist, he was reporting on this organization. They're called One Square Inch of Silence. It's an organization that's promoting the preservation of quiet places. So pretty much what they're doing is they're looking at different rainforests and different places on the earth, and they're trying to prevent man-made noise from coming in. There's no construction, no buildings, just let nature be. And so this journalist, he went and he was following this group, and they led him to this area where there's no man-made noise, and they just left this journalist. They just go, hey, just walk around. And he was walking around, and it was really weird for him. He was like, at first, it felt so strange. Zero noise, just birds, just leaves rustling, and it felt like a strange, bizarre world that he entered into. But then he said, after a few minutes, it started to feel good. After an hour, it felt like he was just in this weird state or this weird trance. And then at one point, he just started weeping. He was like, I just started crying. And he reported, like, it was really weird. He didn't know why he was crying, but he realized something. He realized, oh, he had recently lost, he lost a loved one in his life. A family member had passed away. And he realized he never really dealt with it. And this was grief coming out for the very first time. And he realized, like, this grief, it was just kind of underneath being hidden, being quieted by all the noise and distraction. And it wasn't until here that this, it came out and he could address this internal thing that was taking place. And for a lot of us here, that's you. You have burdens. You have grief. You're carrying it, but you are just, you don't even know it's taking place. You're quieting it down because you're always on this. You're always on this. And science and solitude, what it does is it lets you pause, turn this off. This is going on. Turn this off. And let, and let your soul be still. Because when your soul is still, we see a second thing takes place. Not only is your soul still, but what does the psalmist say in Psalm 46? Be still and know that I am God. Really interesting. The psalmist does not say, read your Bible and know that I'm God. Pray and know that I'm God. Not saying those aren't true. Be still, he says, and know that I'm God. Why? What is it about sitting still that makes us know God? And I think if you actually think about it, the idea of sitting still is really weird. We, we only sit still to do something. I sit still so I can work on my sermon. I sit still so I can concentrate on whatever I'm creating. I sit still so I can focus on this email that I am typing. I sit still so my physical therapist could do physical therapy on me. I sit still for a purpose. But when you sit still simply to be before God, for the first time, you are acting as if God is God and you are not. We spend our whole time doing, planning, moving, accomplishing, furthering our agendas. We're always doing, we go, God, join me. And God, I'll join you. And he blesses you to come along and help you in your journey of life. But the way God actually 
the way it works with them is, no, 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 no. God is doing something. You just, you just sit still and you watch what I do. And we are so not used to that, but this moment of just sitting before God is the first time we're letting God be God. It's a unique act that you cannot do anywhere else, but just be before the Lord and let him move. Alan Noble, he says in his book, You're Not Your Own, he kind of uh, summarizes it in a better way. He says, quote, It is not too difficult to act and say that he is God. We frantically work all week to take care of ourselves. And on Sunday, we sit in church anxiously going over all the things we still need to get done when we sing, when we say that he is God. But our hearts are committed to self-sufficiency. We don't actually know that he is God. We just act like it. The hard thing is to be still and know that he is God. But that is the only way you can know him. A holy stillness accepts that God is sovereign and rests in his goodness and grace. And it accepts that you cannot save the world or yourself. And that's why for a lot of us, those of us who are the most on the move, most on the move, the common testimony that I always hear is, you know, I'm so busy and God feels so far. God feels so, I still believe in God, but I feel really distant because God's not God to you. You're God because you're not being still. Because when you experience God's presence and stillness, something happens in that. It's called intimacy. It's called closeness. It's called this relationship is getting deeper because God is drawing near to you in stillness, not by this hyperactivity. You know, after service, the, some peop, the people that I love talking to the most are people who I've never met. So visitors or newcomers. So if I go to you, visitor, just know it's because I want to talk to you. And I, so I love talking and I'll ask like, you know, hey, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? Uh, how'd you find out of our church? But just know after about five or six questions, I start to low-key panic because I don't know what else to talk about sometimes. If there's no like vibe going on, I'm like, oh, like, what do I do? Hey, come here. And like, I, I need help. And the reason why is because I am used to nurturing relationships through conversations. It's through conversations that I feel comfortable with somebody to kind of be in the same space. But you know who the best types of people are? The best relationships is you don't even have to talk. You know each other so well that you just be in the car together and you just drive. No pressure to get to know each other. No pressure to talk. You just, you just know each other. That's me and my wife. When we start dating, always talking, always bringing up conversations, always trying to figure out and impress her. But now we're just quiet for like hours and it's all good. Because those are the deepest relationships that are there when you can be still. And this is what God is inviting us to. The deepest relationship that you could have is be still before God. And for a lot of us, that's so foreign. We have no idea how to be still before God because it's so awkward with him. We ha- it's new. It's still that kind of beginning phase, trying to cultivate it through talk. But the ultimate pinpoint, the ultimate maturity is you can be before his presence, which is why Jesus was always in the silent presence of God. C.S. Lewis, he's my favorite Christian writer. Uh, throughout his works, you'll see um, he, he kind of describes hell in a very interesting way. And he, uh, there's two, um, at least two things C.S. Lewis says about hell that I find to be very interesting. One thing is Lewis, when he describes hell, he doesn't describe hell as like fire and brimstone and torture. You know how C.S. Lewis describes hell? It's a place filled with noise. It's the noisiest place you know. And every parent is like, amen. Noise is hell. But Lewis, I think he says that because he knows if you are 
not ever silent and there's always noise. You're always going to have this burden because there's this internal thing going on. You can't really know God. And so hell, the essence of this noisy hell, that's what it is. It's noise. You, you don't know what's happening. You don't know who God is. And that's what hell Lewis is describing. That's, and the second thing that C.S. Lewis says about hell that's really interesting is not only is it a place of noise, you choose to go to hell. Lewis says that God does not send you to hell, but you choose hell. Now, before we get into the validity of that, that's a, our automatic, I guess, reaction would be like, that's weird. Who wants to go to hell? Who would ever choose hell? And the reality is, well, we do all the time. You know why? Because if hell is noise, that's what you're going to do right after the service. You will choose to go back to your normal life. That was a great sermon. Go back to your phone. Go back to the noisiness. You're still not happy. You're still tired. You're still weary because you're choosing it. You can't help but choose it. That's what you're habituated to do. And that's where a lot of us, we're stuck. We're tired. We're weary. We choose hell for ourselves. And this is where Jesus is like, it doesn't have to be that way. It takes time, but this is where the practices come in. And that leads to the last point. Well, how do we do this? How do we practice silence and solitude in the midst of this hell that we slowly create for ourselves? I know for me personally, this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. If you know me, you, this is almost kind of annoying to you that I talk about silence and solitude so much, but I've been doing it for over a year. And this has single-handedly been the most life-changing thing for me. Where for me, to practice silence and solitude means that it's not like I'm in the wilderness for 40 days, maybe one day, but every day what I do is just two, three minutes just pause. I get away from the kids. I go, sorry, hon, can you watch the kids for a little bit? I'm away from the kids. I'm just there in this silent place. Sometimes I'll read my Bible before and I'll just pause. I'll breathe in. I'll breathe out. I feel weird because it feels like yoga, but it's actually really Christianity I think is taking place where I'm feeling God's presence here. I create space where I, I put away my phone. I don't check my phone. I put away uh, any type of distraction that's there. I'm just, I'm just sitting. I'm not driving in the car because that's not silence and solitude. You're moving. I'm in this quiet place. It's just two, three minutes. And you'll be surprised how bored you get. It is so boring. It takes so, it feels so long. And you check your clock. It's just been a minute. And one thing that was really helpful is see boredom as like this purging of your soul, this purging of the noise that screams for sound. And I'm just letting that boredom just kind of move. And one thing I just, I try to do these days, I repeat a verse to myself, be still and know that I am God. I just keep repeating that. And it's literally just two, three minutes and I'm done. And over, maybe the first day, the first week, nothing happened. But over time, like, I don't know how I live without that. It feels like I am breathing in my soul. Where now I practice silence and solitude throughout my day. Just two, three minutes of a pause, be still. And then I read my Bible. And then I pray. And then I go to work. And then I go to that meeting. Silence and solitude, recognizing God's presence is here. Now, what happens over time if you keep doing this? Let me first tell you what happens if you don't do this. If you don't do this, there's a couple of things that you're going to experience. You're going to slowly over time feel a distance between yourself and your soul because you have no idea what's going on in your soul. The basis is going on. You don't even hear it. And you're going to be easily triggered all the time. You don't know why. You're going to be easily angered all the time. You don't know why. You're going to feel over time this depression that kind of rises, this anxiety in the future. And you have this low-key fatigue for 24-7 that's kind of plaguing you throughout your day. 
and you can choose your escape of choice with a cheap fix like Netflix or TikTok or alcohol or porn or hobbies. And then you can slowly feel this distance from God because you know a lot about God, but you don't really know God personally for yourself. And you're going to live off someone else's spirituality, their podcast, their devotional book, the sermon. That's how you experience God only. And you become easy prey for the evil one because you're vulnerable and you feel more distance. And that's how a lot of us are living. This weird distance from God. Because there's so much noise in our life. But if you experience silence and solitude, if you practice what Jesus practiced, you'll begin to notice a couple of things take place. One is you'll find you have a quiet place in the business of life where you could get away just for a minute, the noise, the traffic, the, the hyperactivity, the phone, just getting away, and you could breathe. You're going to live less in the past because you're not, you're silencing that, less about the future, and you're just, in the present. You know, my, the postgrads and I, we're doing a, I'm doing a cohort and we're not doing our phones every morning for this past week. And something about that, I'm like, wow, the Orange, Orange County has a lot of birds. Like, I just noticed there's a lot of birds here. And I never noticed that because I was never in the present. Always worry about past stuff, always worry about future stuff. But you're in the present, just noticing things right now. You start to feel. So many Asians, we have no idea how we feel. Someone does something messed up to you. Are you mad? I don't know. Should I be mad? Yes, you should be mad. But you have buried your emotions so deep that you don't even know how you feel. But when you have those moments where you just kind of pause and you let the emotions rise, you go, wow, I feel sad today. Or I feel joyful. I feel worried today. Or I feel thankful. You begin to feel that connection to yourself. You see the good in your heart. You see the bad in your heart. You realize how close God feels to you or how far God feels to you. And you recognize that God, he's not just present on Sundays, but he's present every day. Because you experience his presence. You know he's here. You know he's moving. You know his spirit is there. And most of all, the last thing that happens is if you experience silence and solitude enough where the external noise is off, the internal noise is off, every theologian from Jonathan Edwards to John Calvin to Augustine, they all say something really strange to me, really interesting, which is when those things are off, you begin for the first time to hear the voice of God. Now, when I read all these guys talking about that, I always thought they're all kooky. I'm like, hearing the voice of God, like, I get really suspicious when people say that. When a pastor tells me I heard God say to me, I'm like, okay, come on, power play. What do you want to put the budget into? Tell me. Or someone says, hey, God told me that we should be married. Okay, buddy. <laughs> like, yeah, sure, that was God. And so I always dismissed it. But these days when I'm practicing it and I read it, I'm like, you know, I'm beginning to understand what they're saying. And here's what I mean. Um, my wife and I, we have an agreement, okay? We have three kids and it's really hard to put down the kids. It's a lot of work. So we have an agreement. One day I put down the kids, the next day she puts down the kids. We take turns and that's kind of our agreement. So there was one day where I had, you know, it was my day off. My wife was to put down the kids. I'm like, oh, I could just relax and chill at night. My wife goes up to me, she goes, Tom, I had such a long day. Can you put down the kids tonight? And I was like, sure, hon. Going to the room, and in my mind, the whole time, I'm like, it's your turn. <laughs> like, it's your turn. Like, it's not my turn. It's your turn. I kept screaming that as loud as possible in my brain. And I put the kids down, and I put them down. And, then, and my wife was like, super gracious. Thank you so much. I'm like, no problem. It was your turn. And I kept thinking that. And I remember the next morning, I had my routine of silence and solitude. And as I was walking, that loud noise kept playing. It was her turn. It was her turn. That's so not fair. I'm going to get her tonight. 
I'm going to get back there somehow. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about fairness in this household. We're going to talk about the agreement and us breaking it. I had all that noise in my brain. And it was really strange. Like, I had this, like, sense. I'm like, is that the spirit? Like, I felt something almost say to me, do you do well to be angry? Is she not your wife? Isn't she really tired having a baby who's a newborn? Aren't those your kids who you so dread putting down? Do you do well to be angry? And I kept thinking, like, wow, that was really rebuking feeling that. Like, yeah, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I making such a big deal out of that? I just let it go. And that was the first time looking back, I'm like, you know, there was something about that moment that I feel like for the first time, God's voice is being heard in my life. One way I like to almost separate it is, you know, what's the difference between prayer and Bible reading and science and solitude? Prayer, you can almost say it like this. Um, Prayer, it's on the screen. Next one, next one. Um, Prayer is us speaking to God. Bible reading Is there another slide? I'll just say it. Don't worry about that screen. Praying is us speaking to God. Bible reading is God speaking to us. And none of us change. You guys hear the Bible all the time. You guys pray all the time. You're exactly the same. Science and solitude, we listen. We're listening. You don't change when people talk to you. You just hear you don't change when you're talking there. You're just expressing yourself. But are you listening to what God is trying to say? And, you know, sometimes we get freaked out because is it me saying it or is it God saying it? That's where next week Bible reading is so important. But science and solitude is where we put away the noise and maybe for the first time you can hear God speaking. And so as I invite the praise team up, if I can invite us right now to take a moment to practice that, to pause to be still. You might hear for the first time some type of noise coming place. It's that internal bass player that's been playing for a long time. Now let's just be still before God. Let's be still before his presence. And then afterwards, we'll, we'll see, we'll come back in prayer, but let's take a moment to practice it now, what Jesus would practice, to be away with the Lord and just sit in his presence. So let's just pause for a moment and be still. And